We all have times when we fail as followers of Jesus Christ, times when we don't live up to our own goals or our own expectations or the way we thought that we would have responded, and then we realize later, wait a minute, I didn't respond as I should have responded or like I had hoped I would have responded, which is why I'm grateful for texts like this in the Bible, texts like Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50 that Liz just read for us. Because as you can note, this is not the apostles' finest hour. In fact, these verses show us just how imperfect these disciples really were. And reminded of the words of Paul in Romans 15, 4, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. And I think this text fits that description nicely. It was written in former days for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement that we receive from reading something like this, we might have hope. And so our goal this morning, this is not going to be on the screen, I apologize, we're going old school this morning, I didn't create any content for this morning, for the screen, so you'll just want to write this down. Our goal this morning is really twofold. Our goal is that by seeing the failures of Jesus' disciples, we might, one, be encouraged not to fail as they did, and two, that we might have hope in the grace of God when we do, when we do fail. Let me say that again. Our goal this morning is that by seeing the failures of the disciples, we might, one, be encouraged not to fail as they did, and that we might, two, have hope in the grace of God when we do fail. So as we get into verses 46 through 50, you might recall that Jesus has recently taken three of his followers, Peter, James, and John, and he's called them up on the mountain with him. And on the mountain, as he's praying, Jesus' face is changed. His clothes become dazzling white. And then Moses and Elijah appear and begin talking with Jesus. And Peter and James and John, they see all of this. And then Jesus returns from the mountain to find a father pleading that his son be cured of an evil spirit. Apparently this man had brought his son to the disciples for him to be healed. And the disciples were unable to help. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he casts out the demon and then he gives this boy back to his father. And again, the disciples see all of this. They know that they couldn't heal this boy, and they see that Jesus can. And then, while they are marveling at all of this, verse 43 tells us, Jesus drops the bomb on his disciples, telling them that he is going to be given into the hands of his enemy. Now, all of this must have been overwhelming for the disciples. I mean, they have seen Jesus do amazing things. They have seen him feed the 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000 or however many were gathered there. 
They have seen his glory and his identity like no other on the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, to prove that all of this is about Jesus, he does what none of them were able to do, and he heals an only son and restores him back to his father. And now Jesus tells them that he is about to be handed over or given into the hands of his very enemies. This is a lot to process. In fact, I think if you and I were disciples of Jesus at that time, we would say, okay, wait a minute, time out. Let's go find a retreat center somewhere. Let's go find a cabin in the mountains somewhere. We need to let this settle a little bit. We just need to think on all the things that we have just seen and heard. But look at their response in verse 46. Word of the Lord says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Yes, you read that right. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how the argument started. It could be that Peter, James, and John, who had gone to the Mount of Transfiguration, had seen Jesus' glory like no other, came down off the mountain a little bit prideful, maybe a little bit with a swagger. You know what? I know we're all disciples, but the reality is we were on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw Jesus' glory. He invited us. Did you get it? Oh, sorry. I guess your invitation must have been lost. We don't know if that's what happened. We're not even told the exact words that were used. They probably weren't walking along saying to one another, hey, you know what? Uh, Just so you know, I'm the greatest. Like, just so that we have that clear, Bartholomew, you're a great guy and all, but I'm really the best. That's probably not the words that they use. It's probably not how the conversation went. But Luke, our author, cuts right through all of what may have been said to give us the bottom line, which is they were arguing about who was the greatest. How easily they had forgotten that everything good in their life was not a product of their own genius, but of God's grace. And how easily we forget the same thing. And this is ridiculous when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, almost laughable. Consider the disciples. None of them were all that great in the first place. And none of them were elite thinkers. None of them were upwardly mobile. None of them were Ivy League educated. None of them were culture shapers. None of them would have been chosen in their senior year of high school most likely to succeed. None of them would have been named one of the 40 under 40 by talent spotters in the business world of the first century. I mean, just think about the record of the disciples here in chapter 9 of the book of Luke alone. Just this one chapter, they had been unable to feed the crowd. Peter, James, and John had fallen asleep as Jesus is transfigured. And then they had been unable to free a boy who had a demon in him. I mean, not a great track record. That's just one chapter. Philip Ryken writes, Jesus had been telling them to deny themselves, but rather than carrying their crosses, they were trying to climb their way to the top of the spiritual ladder. Brothers and sisters, how easy it is for us to forget 
that our worth is not in what we bring to Jesus, but in what he provides for us. It is so easy to begin to adopt a mindset, an attitude, which seems to think, you know what, isn't God lucky to have someone like me? I mean, I know a lot about the Bible, or I really serve well, or I'm really gifted, or I have a lot of friends and can influence many people for the sake of Jesus, or, 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 or. It is so easy for us to think that our worth is in what we bring to Jesus, not in what Jesus provides for us. How easy it is for us to forget that our lives, even the air we breathe, is owing to the grace of God. And Paul, the first century church planner and missionary, put it like this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Consider your calling. You weren't wise by worldly standards. You weren't more powerful or richer, but what did God do? He chose the foolish and the weak and the lowly, and he still does that today. Why? So that we might not boast before God, but so that we might boast about God. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And so we sing, my worth is not in what I own not in the strength of flesh and bone, but my worth is in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but my worth is in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. Therefore, I will not boast in wealth or might or in human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ the cross, which is why we rejoice in Christ, our Redeemer, our greatest treasure, our, the wellspring of our soul. We will trust in him no other. Our soul will be satisfied in him alone. Well, how does Jesus respond to all of this? Verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, which is a really significant statement. Took a child and put him by his side and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. A couple things to notice about Jesus' response here. First, notice the grace of Jesus here. 
I mean, Jesus could have written off this group of disciples. After all they had been through, they still don't get it. He could have said, all right, I'm going to fire you guys. I'm going to move on with a new group. Right? And he well would have been justified to do so. But he doesn't do that. Jesus is gracious with these slow-to-learn disciples. Which is good news because he is gracious with slow-to-learn disciples today. A second thing to notice, though, is that Jesus does not let them continue in their sin of pride. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't say, ah, no worries. Don't worry about it. It's all right. We all have our own failures and flaws. He doesn't do that. He doesn't let them continue in their sin of pride. He teaches them. He sees a child, and he brings the child over, and he says to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Wow. So Jesus is saying the way in which we receive a child or someone without standing or someone that doesn't, can't give back to us, the way we receive them in that way, we are also receiving Jesus, and as we receive Jesus in that way, we are receiving the Father who sent him. The ESV study Bible notes are helpful here. They remind us that children had no power, no status, no rights, and were regarded as insignificant and disposable, as witnessed by the exposure of, usually female, children in the Greco-Roman world. They were seen as small, as powerless, as insignificant, and yet Jesus does not overlook them. Even though so many around him would, Rather, he loves them and he receives them. Now, the point here is not be like a child. The point is this. Rather than competing to see who is the greatest in the eyes of the world, choose instead to identify with those who have nothing to offer in return. Welcome those who are weak and vulnerable and hurting and going through rough patches in life because as you do, you will find that you are welcoming Christ and as you welcome Christ, you are welcoming the Father who sent him which is really just an echo of what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 37 and following, where he says, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least these my brothers you did it to me you see friends as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ we should seek to see ourselves and to see others the way the triune God sees us and sees others we recognize that our worth is not in what we offer to God, but in what he has provided for us. And this slowly transforms us to think less and less about ourselves and about our status and our image. And at the same time, it changes the way we see others. We begin to see others regardless of their power, regardless of their influence, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their education as people who are created by God and in need of reconciliation to him through Jesus Christ. 
brothers and sisters, a watching world will evaluate the credibility of our faith in many ways. And one of the ways that a watching world will evaluate the credibility of our faith will be how we treat those whom our society writes off. Several years back, uh, a guy named Larry Hurtado wrote a great book called Destroyer of the Gods. And the, the title kind of points to the fact that in the second and third century, which is what his book narrates or speaks to, writes about, he talks about how the, the, the truthfulness or the validity, validity of the Christian message was seen not only by what Christians said with their mouths, but the way they served the most vulnerable in society, specifically orphan children in the Greco-Roman world, children who were unwanted, who were thrown out, who were left out in the streets and not cared for. And he writes and says that the way the Christians cared for those who offered nothing to them in return provided one of the greatest evidences for the truthfulness of the message they spoke with their lips of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might think that our society has progressed since the first century when Jesus was first speaking this. But I would argue that we have not. Not all that much. Children remain the most vulnerable in our society. And just look at the Holocaust happening all around us, the horror of abortion, which every year kills almost a million children in the U.S. alone. Defenseless. Vulnerable children. And children remain the most vulnerable in our society. They are often seen as a nuisance. They're often seen as expensive, as a hassle, as little people who stand in the way of the dreams and goals and freedoms of big people. I mean, just research the decreasing childbirth rates among married couples in the West. It's appalling. Or notice how so many parents, it seems, from the time their child is born are looking for ways to distance themselves, to pursue their own dreams while kind of pawning off our kids to whatever activities we can to keep them occupied. We may have time for us. Have you ever noticed how luxury brands almost never have children in their advertisements. Because luxury is not being burdened with children. Burdened. It's not by mistake. And yet the Bible consistently and emphatically tells us that children are a blessing from the Lord. Over and over again, we see that children come from God to us as a gift of his kindness and love and grace. We read over and over again that Jesus loves children, that our mission as Christians is to care for orphans and widows. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. See, rather than arguing about greatness or comparing ourselves to others, greatness 
in God's eyes is measured by the way we receive and serve and care for the least of these. And that is humbling. If you spend your days caring for children, you know how humbling it can be. Especially in in a broken world that does not highly value the role of raising children. And yet even as we serve those around us who offer nothing in return, whether it's children or adults, Jesus says, you serve me. In other words, it's humbling, but it's worth it. As Jesus will say later in Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And notice John's response to all of this. If you have a Bible like mine, you might have a subheading right before verse 49. Just as a reminder, those were not in the original text. Those aren't a part of this inspired Bible. They were put there to help us in Bible study. They generally do that. Occasionally, they hinder our study. And that's the case now because this is all part of one dialogue. Verse 48 goes right into verse 49. And the break there would make us think maybe this is a different conversation, but it's not. It's the same conversation. John answers Jesus. Jesus has just said, whoever is the least among all of you is the one who is great. And John answers and says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. It seems like a really odd thing to say, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus has just caught these disciples arguing about who is the greatest. And then Jesus addresses their pride by demonstrating that the heart of a disciple is aimed at humility, at serving those who offer nothing in return. And then John speaks up and says in verse 49, hey, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not one of us. He's not part of this circle. He's not part of our group, our tribe. So apparently, someone was casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he wasn't part of the 12. Now this is ironic. John's statement here is ironic. And it's not just John. Like John is the, is the, you know, opens his mouth and inserts his foot here. But it's not just John. It's maybe striking because we're used to these kinds of things coming from Peter, right? Like, oh, Peter, why'd you say that? But this is something that they all did. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow us. So this is something all, that the, all of the apostles are engaged in here. And it's ironic that they would bring this up for several reasons. First, it's ironic because if you go back to chapter 9, verse 40, what we looked at just a couple of weeks ago when J.R. preached, you'll remember that Jesus' apostles were powerless to cast the demon out of the small boy. And now here's someone casting a demon out in the name of Jesus. And yet they try to stop it. Their comment, John's comment here, is also ironic because of the words that John uses. Look again at verse 49. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with who? In my Bible it says us. I don't know about yours. Let's try that again. We tried to stop him because he does not follow who? Us. He does not follow with us. Like, we would have loved John to say, we tried to stop him because he does not follow you. But he doesn't say that. In fact, it seems pretty clear that this man is a follower of Jesus because he's doing this in Jesus' name. And Jesus is is lending, the Spirit is lending some sort of credibility because it's actually happening. 
Spirits are actually, it seems, Luke presents this as being cast out, and Luke is writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit. He does not follow with us. There's a prideful insider sort of disposition here within the heart of the apostles. This man is doing Jesus' work in Jesus' name, and there's, it's presented to us as credible, but he has a problem because this is not within the circle. Third, this is also ironic because John's statement comes right after Jesus has challenged them about their pride. And here it seems the apostles are demonstrating pride. Like, we're better because we're some of the, we're, we're part of the apostleship, right? We're part of the 12. We're, we're the inner circle. So in verse 46, you had them arguing about which was the greatest. Perhaps Peter, James, and John thinking that they're better because they're a part of the inner, inner circle. And now you have the apostles bragging about how they told this man to stop because he was not one of them. There's a, an ugly sort of tribalism gone wrong here. This man was doing your work in your name, but he's not one of us, so we tried to stop him. And that can extend to us today as well. They love the gospel, and Jesus is blessing, but we're not happy. We won't support it. We'll try to stop it because their views on the gifts of the Spirit are different, or their views on baptism are different, or their views on the end times are different, or the way they worship when they gather is a bit different than us. And once again, how does Jesus respond? Verse 50, Jesus said to them, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Again, notice, Jesus does not fire his apostles. He doesn't say, enough. Come on, guys. That's what I would have said. I would have said, you have got to be kidding me. After all we just talked about, and now you're bragging about being a part of the inside circle, you're trying to stop people who are doing legitimate work of mine, just because they don't do it in the way that you like. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't fire them. He doesn't give up on them. But once again, he is gracious with these slow-to-learn disciples. And once again, he also, secondly, does not leave them in their error. Do not stop them, he tells, do not stop him, he tells them, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, if that sounds vaguely familiar, it, it is, because in Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says to his followers, he who is not with me is against me. So Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, hey, if you're not with me, you're against me. No middle ground. You're either with me, if you're not with me, then you automatically are against me. And now here, in Luke chapter 9, verse 50, he says, don't stop the one who is not with you, because the one who is not against you is for you. 
How do we make sense of those? Because they almost seem to compete, right? And I know it's still a bit early or maybe you're hungry on a Sunday and it's, it's hard, but I want you to put your thinking cap on for a minute. How do these two statements relate? Jesus says in Matthew, hey, if, if you are not for me, if you're not in, on board with who I am, if you've not bowed the knee to me as the way, the truth, and the life, then you are against me. And here... Jesus says, hey, if you're not against, if, if you're not against, uh, the one who is not against you is for you. How do we make those two things connect? How, are they against one another? Are they opposed to one another? I think the easiest way to understand these two statements is to see that one is about the identity of Jesus and one is about the work of Jesus' followers. And Jesus is saying in Matthew, if you are not with me, if you don't believe in me, then you are against me. There's no neutrality here, no middle ground. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you don't bow the knee to that, you are against me. But here in Luke 9, he's talking about his followers And again, we don't know much about the identity of this miracle man in verse 49, but we do know that he was doing the work in Jesus' name and the Lord appeared to be working through him. Point being, Luke presents him under the authority of the Holy Spirit as being one of Jesus' followers. He's not one of the 12 apostles, but he's on board with the ministry of Jesus. He's not like Simon in uh, Acts chapter 8, who wanted the power of Jesus to use for his own sinful purposes. But Luke presents this man in verse 49 as orthodox. And Jesus says, just because he's not one of you, he's not the enemy. Now to be sure, church, there is an enemy. But it's not fellow gospel-centered, Jesus-loving brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of how we might view second and third tier issues differently. Let me say that again. There is an enemy, church. But it is not fellow gospel-centered, Jesus-loving brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of how we may differ in views on second and third tier issues. And that is contrary to what you might come to think just reading evangelicals on Twitter sometimes. Study is good and convictions are absolutely important and we should align every area and every tier of our life and doctrine to the whole truth of scripture. But friends, there are gospel-believing, Jesus-loving men and women outside our local church, amen? And there are gospel-believing and Jesus-loving men and women outside our Reformed Baptistic tribe. Amen? And there are gospel-loving and Jesus-loving and gospel-believing men and women who differ on some points of theology and some points of doctrinal distinction, but understand that Jesus Christ is the Holy Son of God who came and was born of a virgin and lived without sin and died as a substitute on the cross for our sin in our place. 
and rose again three days later, defeating sin and death, that all who by faith trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. And there are those who affirm that and believe that. And yet we may differ on other issues. They may do things differently that are not gospel issues and they are not the enemy. In fact, I think the real enemy loves it when our tribal allegiance supplants the glory of the triune God in our hearts. When we're more excited about our tribe increasing, our viewpoint increasing, or our local church increasing. And we are the glory of God increasing and being seen and savored. Scripture being studied. And I pray that our local church would be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, that whether in pretense or in truth, our goal is that Christ is proclaimed and in that we rejoice. Which sounds a lot like what Joshua said to Moses when in Numbers chapter 11, these unauthorized prophets began to arise in Israel and began to preach and teach and minister among the people. Joshua tried to stop it for Moses' sake. This is not something Moses authorized. And Moses responds to Joshua in Numbers eleven twenty nine, 29, and he says, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Does this mean then that we celebrate the ministry of anyone who says they love Jesus? No, not necessarily. We're called to be discerning. We're called to discern the fruit and doctrine of those who preach and teach and minister and claim the name of Christ. We don't recommend every church in Dayton just because it has the name church in it. But we are called to evaluate our own hearts that the Holy Spirit might convict us when our motivation is pride. Or when we reject the biblically faithful work of another simply because they are not one of us or they don't do it how we might have done it. And so there are Two examples in these verses 46 through 50, both of them drawing from pride, both of them addressing the pride that's in our heart, the pride that can so easily grow up, which is a message that's needful for us today. Because I've failed at times in these ways, and you likely have as well. There have been times we have sought to use our God-given opportunities to sort of platform ourselves, or to sort of banner our own greatness or sort of kind of prop up how, how important or well-connected or well-liked or influential or authoritative we are rather than humbly being satisfied and delighting and simply serving without recognition. And once again, we can be so easy to forget the faithfulness of God and to highlight our own obedience, our own ability as the, the way we 
are the way we are, how we got to where we are today. Well, you know what? I just had a lot of opportunities and took those and was really smart and made some good decisions in my life. And therefore, God's using me the way he is. Isn't he lucky to have me? How quickly we move on from what God has done to dwell on what we have accomplished. And then we have the grace of God in texts of the Bible like this that remind us that our salvation and standing with God is all and only of his grace. It's his electing work. It's his death on the cross. It's his sealing and guarding through the Holy Spirit. Which is why I'm really thankful for these apostles And I'm thankful for Jesus who gives grace to slow of learning disciples like me. And just maybe like you. I'm grateful that God does not give up on us in our failures. There's an old song when I was a kid growing up. We used to sing this in Sunday school. He's still working on me. Maybe you remember that. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars and the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. Because he's still working on me. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.